This is Suno India Production. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android and iPhone app. Download it now. This mini series has been made possible by a grant from the Thakur Family Foundation. Thakur Family Foundation had no editorial control on these episodes. चीन में एक ऐसा वायरस फैल रहा है कि भारत ने भी इसके खतरे को भांपकर सतर्कता बरतनी शुरू कर दी है ये खतरा है कोरोना वायरस का जिसे वुहान वायरस भी कहा जा रहा है देश की राजधानी दिल्ली समेत मुंबई Indian students will now be evacuated from Wuhan virus from tomorrow. outbreak that has claimed to own 13 lives in China in a major relief an Air India flight has uh, been sent to China to evacuate nearly 600 Indians stranded there the flight took off at 12:30 and is slated to return to Delhi at 2 a.m. tomorrow another special flight may depart this virus could do if it were to spread in a country with a weaker health system we must act now to help countries prepare for that possibility for all of these reasons i'm declaring a public health emergency of international concern over the global outbreak of novel coronavirus aaj raat aaj raat 12 baje se pure desh mein dhyan se suniye pure desh mein aaj raat 12 baje se संपूर्ण देश में संपूर्ण लॉकडाउन होने जा रहा है हिंदुस्तान को बचाने के लिए हिंदुस्तान के हर नागरिक को बचाने के लिए आपको बचाने के लिए आपके परिवार को बचाने के लिए आज रात 12 बजे से घरों से बाहर निकलने पर पूरी तरह पाबंदी लगाई जा रही है Sometime mid-pandemic, as a journalist and former health communications professional, I began to reflect upon how the various state governments and central government were communicating to the people around the pandemic. By communications and the role various stakeholders have played in building the narrative and messaging around this pandemic. Hi, I am Padma Priya, the editor-in-chief of Suno India and your host for this series, Talking Right. This series is a result of many months of research and interviews with various experts where they reflected on what worked, what didn't work and what could have been done better to alert the public. For this episode, I reached out to Dr. Anant Ban who is a researcher in global health, bioethics and health policy and works for Sangat, a not-for-profit organization working in health policy and health interventions. You will also hear from Dr. Usha Raman who is a professor at the Department of Communications at the University of Hyderabad. I first sought his initial thoughts on how Indian government was faring in communicating about COVID-19. Sort of looking at almost retrospectively um while well, of course the pandemic is still on but looking at how the pandemic played out from a public health communications point of view you know what are your initial thoughts on this how do you think how do you think we fared as a country in the last 18 months from this point of view 
Sure. So, uh, you know, first of all, I don't think anyone was expecting the pandemic, right? Which is, uh, it, it sort of uh, came upon us uh, in a way which uh, no one had probably predicted. Of course, there have been past pandemics, but uh, that is, we will have a pandemic which will go on for so long and involve such a large part of the world and cause this much devastation was probably not something which uh, people were prepared for, health systems were prepared for. And that, of course, uh, you know, also is a problem in itself that we don't have health systems necessarily prepared and resilient enough to anticipate such a situation coming through. Well, this is true that no one saw the pandemic coming and enveloping the entire world the way it did. It is worth mentioning that many countries, including US and India, had some form of pandemic preparedness plans in place. In fact, in December 2019, before all hell broke loose with COVID-19, the World Health Organization, or WHO, hosted a gathering with a diverse set of experts to discuss preparedness for a potential influenza pandemic. But in the beginning of COVID-19 pandemic, there was no clarity about the virus itself, which led to pretty stringent decisions by various governments, including India. Initially, there was not a lot of clarity uh, around the virus itself, how it was spreading, because it is a new virus, and then what would be the manifestations, you know. And so, in, in the, probably in the first few months, that was what was being figured out. And uh, because there was certainly a lot of concern initially, especially at, as it started to spread across countries, a lot of uh, decisions were made which were probably quite stringent. Uh, a good example of that would be our national lockdown, which happened when we had a uh, relatively less number of cases reported in the country, but was uh, imposed uh, across the board. Um, and uh, that also links to your question, which is how did we do on the public health communication? So I think the challenge has been that uh, while there has been a lot of leadership uh, and, uh, you know, this goes all the way to the national leadership, state leadership, district leadership, sub-district leadership, getting involved in uh, sort of communicating decisions, the rationale for the decisions perhaps could have been clarified in a much more transparent and open manner. Because what happens is you have decisions which are announced, but perhaps the ramifications, the evidence base behind it, not necessarily always being talked about in an open manner and that leads to these lingering questions which uh, a lot of people might have. Now th that doesn't only reply to decisions about uh, you know uh, the lockdown but also why certain interventions were allowed, uh, you know why was something allowed to be used as a prophylactic at mass scale, why were decisions made around allowing uh, uh, you know, convalescent plasma therapy to be used, hydroxychloroquine uh, to be widely used, decisions around vaccination, uh, you know, evidence based behind it, and uh, how were decisions made around prioritization of limited resources, availability of oxygen. As we know, you know, through the waves and the last 18 months and more, you know, a lot of these have been had to be made off the cuff so you know there was not a lot of lead time perhaps for policy makers and that includes the communications team within the government but if they had kept trust building at heart then one would have expected that there would have been a more openness and data being shared 
and that is where i think we were deficient uh, certainly so not to say that this has been an easy task for anyone and you know of course uh, it was it has been challenging times but there is a lot to learn around how we can do better and that includes on the communication side as none of us expected the pandemic there is there's so much you know in the initial months and now with every new variant there is so much uncertainty so how do professionals uh, whether it's in the government sector or in the non government sectors how should professionals provide this need to know information um which will help people make smart decisions and you know um and how do they remain credible while doing so so i think in in short how does one communicate facts and uncertainty almost simultaneously how is messaging to be done what is the right platform who is your audience but also involving the right people from the organization who are on top of the evidence who can with confidence explain what we are dealing with where we are right now what is known what is not known and hence what is the recommendation right so people like mike cryan uh, as you know who have been frequently uh, coming forth and talking about it uh, maria um, and the rest of the team dr somya as well you know many people who have a certain credibility behind them also because they have been consistent because you know no one expects the, everyone to know everything right uh, there is a lot of unknowns as we all know but if you are being honest you're being uh, truthful and you acknowledge what is known acknowledge what is not known and then talk about the facts in a way that it is easy to comprehend and understand uh, and the basis for any recommendation that is what i think we would expect of uh, our policy makers and those in charge of health communication when you start to get a sense that perhaps what you are hearing is divergent from what you are seeing on the ground what is being reported when uh, the evidence base behind a decision or a set of decisions is not very clear or uh, you know there seems to be something wrong with it when a lot of questions are being asked but not necessarily responded to when the communication is unidirectional you know it's it's just a press re- uh, release or a press conference where a lot of facts from their perspective are passed on but you don't really have a chance to seek clarifications especially on areas where uh, there are, there are lingering doubts then i think that's where the trust element starts to uh, get affected and i think that is something we need to um, to address and that is something to not allow to happen dr anand here is alluding to the many press conferences that were held in initial months and during the multiple waves by the ministry of health and family welfare and how sometimes journalists questions were not answered or even taken up to be answered often times communications were one way leaving journalists covering the pandemic frustrated with the lack of answers in a pandemic in fact in any situation where there might be a crisis what is most important is ensuring that there is a certain credibility and trust in the efforts which are being driven uh, from the government side from the authorities from the health system for any public health effort to be successful you need uh, to work with together with the public with communities with individuals and for each of those constituencies you need to ensure that they are on board and they understand why decisions are being taken especially anything which involves uh, for example an impact on their liberty an impact on their rights an impact on their ability uh, to do certain things or not 
or being asked to uh, go ahead and uh, agree to a public health intervention like a vac- uh, you know like vaccination like going in for isolation if infected like uh, agreeing to be quarantined if there is a risk that they might have been exposed to infection um agreeing to stay at home if there is uh, you know a suspension of the of liberties during a lockdown all of that requires people to be convinced that yes this is an important decision this has been taken by a credible uh, group of people who are experts in this domain it is in the best interest of the larger population and uh, if i am sacrificing any of my rights uh, to abide by this that there is someone who will take care of my interests for example ensuring that i have a steady supply of food that i have social support available um, and that especially is true of those who might be the most marginalized or the most vulnerable in our society and that is the kind of individuals and or communities that we need to think through when we are devising any intervention and communicating around it professor usharaman of university of hyderabad who teaches communications pointed out during our conversation how the public trust in public systems also impacts the communication during the pandemic i think in india and in perhaps in some other uh, governments across the world um this trust deficit between the public and the government had i think has been ex- you know gradually increasing over the years um and um if we're talking about india particularly the trust in public systems um whether it is health or education or uh, infrastructure i think um the trust has eroded over the years uh, with the private sector kind of stepping in and not completely fulfilling the public interest goals of those sectors um so we're operating um in a context where there's already a trust deficit um uh, between the government or between the state and the public um and oh, this is overlaid then by uh, the emergency that was created because of the pandemic so then how does communication um help to bridge this gap when the gap is not necessarily of information but it's a gap also of action right so um the government can say you know can shout from the rooftops that they are doing this and they are doing that or you should do this and you should do that um but if there is no trust in the government or in the people who are saying these things then the communication doesn't really i mean there's a huge challenge then for communication right um very often uh, you would go to dashboards covid dashboards for instance that were run by um non state actors like uh, johns hopkins or uh, i mean who is kind of a, an interstate actor but um like johns hopkins or you know in the early days of the pandemic there were a lot of independent uh, uh, data analysts that created their own dashboards and so on so um but that was only available to people who knew how to access information but i think what it showed was there was there was this trust deficit and therefore people were going to other sources for information now when you come to um the part of the public that doesn't have that access i think that's where the crisis really played out right you know i having worked in the public health space of comms and advocacy one of the things that you know we were t- taught early on and learned the hard ways to work with the community and work with the community leaders um do you think that was done effectively in this pandemic do you think um all the necessary community leaders were actually roped in um and maybe an adjunct to that question and you can answer that perhaps later uh 
at the in the initial stages and even now asha workers were asked to go and you know communicate about coronavirus and do these fever surveys um how equipped do you think they actually were in terms of this the sort of understanding towards messaging and setting the tone and and so on i think um in many ways the first few months of the pandemic um the community level actors were not activated by the state but they um autonomously activated themselves seeing that there was this gap right between uh, service provision uh, between information um, access and all of that so i think um uh the gap that was left by the state in terms of reaching the last mile or reaching communities um was really filled by community actors and i think this happened to varying degrees of success so initially in terms of um, you know if you look at small communities urban communities there was a lot of uh, cooperation in terms of sharing information resources uh, sharing methods to uh, stay safe and so on um but that happened only in educated pockets right so when you look at um, rural or even in urban health uh, spaces where um, which are low resourced um it was community health workers that were then asked by the state or ordered by the state to fill this gap um but uh, particularly when you look at uh, asha workers or community health volunteers um what ends up happening is that they have and this is a this is a problem that has existed across time and i think it came again to the fore like many other things during covid which is that there are demands on them to fulfill a particular role in this case of uh, surveillance let's say health surveillance as well as information provision um without giving them either autonomy or sufficient education and reposing trust in them so so i think um, when a uh, field level or community level health workers are not empowered in a true sense right that they don't recognize their agency that they don't recognize their crucial role in this whole thing then um, their role as information purveyors or even as uh, those who surveil becomes much less effective so so i think um, you know this goes back to the trust deficit right so the trust deficit is not just between the state and the public but it's also between within the state and different arms of it so if you look at how asha workers have been used uh, and i'm using the word used very consciously um by the state it's certainly not in a way that recognizes their um true value in the system or even what they could do as community members um so so i think this has complicated things quite a bit right so asha workers ended up i mean they were really frontline but very often they were recognized too late or you know in very tokenistic ways and so on so um so yes communities um, it's at the community level that um, the success or failure of a communication campaign really plays out
Dr. Anant Bahar and I discuss how not engaging in scientific communication can lead to exploitation due to misinformation. One such example is the hype created around Remdesivir in the public, but there was barely any communication around its efficacy. How does not engaging in a discussion about various recommendations on drugs such as hydroxychloroquine, for example, impact the trust of the public? For example, like I just mentioned. There was confusion about the efficacy of remdesivir, yet people were scrambling to buy it. So many of those things happened with the drugs that you described. Happened with plasma therapy. Um, you know, happened with the the usage of multiple interventions. Where at the heart of it, there were claims being made, but no substantiation uh, by good quality research or evidence that this was indeed useful. And what that meant was without like very good regulatory systems people were running around trying to get a dose of x medicine or y medicine and uh, just because they wanted of course their loved ones or people they cared for to benefit right and again that meant that there was perhaps a lot of uh, possibilities of uh, people being taken for a ride uh, you know prices being uh, you know jacked up in no time and uh, that meant that a lot of families probably suffered not just emotionally fine but also financially perhaps some of them still have a guilt that we could have uh, perhaps done x or perhaps done y and because we were not able to source that that is why a family member uh, had uh, an unfortunate outcome uh, from a health uh, perspective or life perspective so that is what is a problem that uh, how do we ensure that our policy making our and our decisions and the way they are communicated are done in a way that is driven by data which is uh, collected well is is uh, you know has has quality attached to it and then how do we keep ourselves abreast of what the latest evidence is and again you know revise our decisions in a very quick manner based on that yeah one i think certainly consistency is good um, you know on on messaging where there is a certain level of confidence behind it for example let's say um, mass usage right that we need to of course be consistent once we have figured it out and i think that evidence has been around now for many many months right that mass usage is extremely important in our response and can help uh, prevent or minimize the spread of infection you know uh, messaging around the utility of vaccination that i think all of us now have known that for a while and so making sure that that messaging um, is is available distancing to the extent possible given our social realities is also something that we knew when use of ventilation again you know so these kind of things hygiene yes to to uh, of course also important uh but of course not being driven to the extreme where people were being sprayed with uh, uh you know bleach and uh, and being put through some kind of tunnels when you were entering a building which again was uh you know shown to be not based in evidence very quickly but still was being followed right so i think one is where there is credible evidence ensuring that that is consistently communicated and also this is something that is demonstrated by uh, people who are looked up to whether those be policy makers whether those be um, influencers from uh, from a social perspective but very important for people to see that 
this is something which is not just being spoken about but also is being demonstrated and is being reinforced secondly i think is being honest about the fact that what is known and what is not known and saying we are trying to figure this one out in the meantime please follow these which is you know it goes back to point number 1 which is that we are sure that these things help and so keep following those we are trying to figure out this new development we are trying to figure out what this variant means we are trying to figure out what the impact of vaccination on this variant might be we are trying to figure out what we need should do on the travel side or not I asked Dr. Arant about the policing language and often stigmatizing language used by public officials in communications. For example, the Telangana Chief Minister K. Chandrasekhar Rao, in a press conference that was held early on in the pandemic, publicly berated the first person who tested positive for COVID and called him foolish. Um, one of the things that happened in the earlier phase, I would say, of the pandemic, and maybe even later. was that there was a lot of policing language that was used and also with the epidemics act there was a lot of coercion that was being used as a way to um almost regulate behavior um and you know from a from a behavior change communications point of view you know how effective do you think this act really is and how effective are these kind of measures um in changing the behavior you know i mean i've had a lot of people justify this by saying but like in a country as vast as india this is the only way you can control a huge population how would you respond to something like that a lot of the legal frameworks that we have uh, say the epidemic diseases act is pretty much a colonial act and in many ways is outdated the disaster management act is relatively newer in comparison but of course you know anything like that when you extend the uh, the inverted commas disaster period to well over almost 2 years is a totally different story right so many of these are probably written up for events which are acute short term in nature but when you see that the event is actually spreading out across multiple weeks months then i think you really need to reassess what criteria uh, do you use and what steps you take and that includes you know what is the basis of response right if the basis of the response ends up being that the district police or the home department is the one driving the response then there is a slight problem uh, and that can become a major problem when that is the main way of addressing the problem rather than having a public health lens of course not to say that law and order is not important uh, during a pandemic response but they are not the ones who should be driving it entirely right they have to be informed by good quality public health thinking and that i don't think sometimes was um, clear that this was indeed happening and are we driven uh, by data from epidemiologists do we have policy makers who understand the nuance of how to do good quality behavior change communication who understand how important community and public engagement is who are understanding what the implications of certain steps are and making sure that you have mechanisms to address that so for example if you are uh, stopping people from going out and earning especially a daily wage earner then do have you put in social support mechanisms
all know about how social media was used to spread misinformation during the pandemic. I asked Dr. Usha if this infodemic is something that can be tackled easily or if it is here to stay for good. She told me media literacy would play a critical role here. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is uh, a question that's come up in many other spaces also, right? When you think about not just misinformation in the space of health, which uh, we found was extremely, um, you know, it could be extremely harmful, uh, but also misinformation that builds a sense of the world, right? Um, whether you're talking about oppressive ideologies or whatever else. And um, I think certainly fact-checking organizations are extremely useful, um, but they still depend on um, a certain uh, pull factor, right? So uh, whether it is individuals wanting to check news or media organizations running fact-checks, you know, rigorously, um, or uh, people not forwarding WhatsApp messages without checking them, it requires um, an involved public. I think the kind of fact-checking machinery that um, you're talking about uh, with these kinds of organizations, it requires a certain investment of time on the part of the public to ensure that uh, the information that they're receiving and sharing is uh, uh, has been uh, vetted in some way. Um, but I think what we need is to empower people to be critical consumers of the news. And that is something that, um, so no matter what kind of regime we have, right, no matter what kind of um, authority is actually um, gatekeeping the news and uh, spinning it to their own advantage, at the receiver level, if people are equipped with the kind of critical tools that they can apply to looking at information, no matter where it comes from, that's ultimately the best answer to have an educated consumer, um, which means then we need to start really early. I mean, we need to get children to start asking why and what and how right from when they start looking, listening to stories. So, you know, just before I came on this podcast, I was this, I was reading this piece about Mashweta Devi's uh, the why why girl. Um, and I think all our children need to become why why children, right? I mean, why is this put in this way? What does this headline mean? Um, why is why are only these people being quoted? Why are not other people being quoted? And so on and so forth. So I think media literacy then becomes the answer. And I know that that sounds like a catch all solution, because everybody ultimately says, it's media literacy, but I think that's because that is the way to go. Um, and it needs to become part of our everyday education uh, you know, that we do. Do you think, um, you know, like one of the things I know that just before the pandemic, India was working with along with other partners like the WHO and other countries was to put like a pandemic preparation plan in place. Um, um, do you think having like a central level communication plan works or should it be extremely decentralized? What, I mean, you know, just from learnings from this, from this pandemic, um, you know, hopefully we will not see another pandemic in our, in our lifetime. But if we were to see one, what would be some of the key learnings for you and what should people at the policy level be adopting? So there is some element of the communication, which I think can come from a central, um, you know, uh, resource, 
right? Um, or a clearinghouse because, you know, they might have access to information um, on a rapid basis. They are getting evidence from all parts of the country. They are also imbibing evidence from global bodies, other countries. And so that can be processed and some standard templates, some messaging can come from there. So uh, in my opinion, um, there is a role for central communication and a central clearinghouse, perhaps because they can be informed by evidence both from within the country, within that area, as well as from evidence from other areas, other countries globally, and uh, use that to make certain broader recommendations. But that cannot be the only communication model. We also need that to happen at the local level and being driven by local realities, you know, because when we sometimes use words such as waves, it sometimes might give the impression that there is this, this singular uniformity of the pandemic happening all across the country. But in, in truth, what we see is that there are, you know, various uh, variations some states have lower case counts, some states have a higher case count. The time when you might have a wave in a particular area might be very different from another. So you might have actually a series of waves uh, which are happening, right? So that is where the local um, evidence, the local database becomes important. So I think, again, that should influence what kind of decisions are also done at that level and communicated so. So we probably need a whole range of communication approaches as well as stakeholders doing it, but with some cohesiveness, with some consistency, so that you don't have this confusion happening. And that would help people know that, you know, when the messaging is coming, it is coming from a place where it is driven by evidence and there is a certain consistency in approach and content. Dr. Usha made another important point while I was talking to her, and it is only apt to summarize this episode with that. Communication is patched on to strategies. So a national disaster management plan or um, a health service delivery plan is already um, out there, and you've already identified who's going to do what, etc. But you have not planned who is going to say what and how are they going to say it. And what they do is often, uh, the success of what they do is very often determined by how that action is uh, communicated. Um, so I think it's important to have people who understand culture and communication at the table when health policy and disaster management policy is, is being framed. All in all, there were a few hits and misses in the way we speak about COVID-19 and how we consume the information around it. It is important for me to mention here that as we are in the third year of the pandemic, the communication around it has all but slowed down drastically, especially those driven by the various government agencies. We seem to take cognizance this as a nation has been only made when the disease by grant from the Thakur Family Foundation. Thakur Family Foundation had no editorial control on these episodes. This is Suno India production. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android and iPhone app. Download it now.